0: Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. If you're coming in new to this series, that might sound a bit strange to you. There's then a, a long list of names and places um, that feel quite remote to us uh, about how they settled in Jerusalem. They've come back from exile in Babylon, and here are God's people many years ago. Um, I'll say more about that in just, just a moment. Um, this morning we're thinking about God's a God-centered community. What does it look like? Let's reflect first on our own culture. So over the last 50 years particularly, there's been... Uh, huge changes in our society, and one of the biggest changes has been a move away from what we can call a collective society society that, uh, that very much prizes community through to um, an in more individualistic society. Now this cartoon uh, captures and caricatures perhaps a bit unfairly, but anyway, just to um, make the point, um, the difference between Um, these two cultures. So an individualistic society, a bit like the United States or here in the UK, they're more me-focused. So they prize the rights, the independence, the self-interest of individuals. So the caricature here is a picture of an after-class scene. So having been in a class in the US, uh, on the left there, um, is a picture with everyone doing their own thing. Everyone is an individual Superhero. Saving their world, maybe the world. Who knows? And then collective societies like Japan or or South Korea, they are more others focused. They prize the well being of the group, family, community as a whole over individual desires. Pursuing group harmony. And rule following. I I think we saw this particularly in the COVID pandemic, didn't we? The difference between our cultures and how people obey rules. Um, Well, the caricature here paints an after-class picture in Japan with everyone doing the same thing, following the leader, huddled around the leader. Everyone's um, part of the group, working together like penguins to survive, to thrive in the world. Now, both of those are slightly unfair, extreme caricatures. Um, And it's important to say that both individualistic societies and collective societies have some good things about them and some bad things about them. But the individualism that we see in the Western world feels increasingly selfish and harsh and unforgiving, and judgmental. Today people are more lonely, more depressed, than in many previous generations. And this is even seen in the way that um, people express spirituality and faith. So um, a columnist writing for the Washington Post says this, some of us are turning to convenient, low commitment substitutes for faith and fellowship. Astrology, The easy spiritualism of yoga and self-care. This is a really interesting thing. She says this. Here's what really worries me. Few of these activities are geared towards building deep relationships and communal support as the religious traditions people are leaving behind. A recent YouGov survey found that 18%, 18% of UK men and 12% of women do not have even one close friend. Almost a third of 18 to 24-year-olds feel hopeless. A fifth of 16 to 25-year-olds don't believe life is worth living. And over a quarter say, their lives have no purpose. And significantly, the thing that marks out the happiest 10% of people is not a fierce individualism, but actually collectivism. The strength of their social relationships, their sense of connectedness to other people. Now when we come to God's Word, the Bible, we see what a God-centered community looks like over the centuries, and into the ugly mess that we so often make of our relationships and of community, in God's community, we see a beautiful picture of what it looks like to, on the one hand, be supremely valued as an individual who's made in the very image of God, as well as deeply and life-transformingly connected in self-giving, not selfish, relationships with others. And Nehemiah 11 and 12, well, it's a very long list of people, but actually, it's one of those places where valued individuals in selfless community is beautifully displayed. And as we look at it today, I hope we can see just the, the incredible difference that Jesus can make to our lives, to our friendships and to our potential impact in a lonely and a hurting society. When God is at the center of a community, we've got three things here that will feature. Here's the first. People living with strategic choices, or making strategic choices. Living with strategic choices. Um, Let's just get a bit of context. The book of Nehemiah uh, records events from the 5th century BC. Um, The nation of Judah... It's returned from exile in Babylon. And their world famous temple and their city has been rebuilt. Their leaders have called them back to faithfulness to God. But if their rebuilt capital city of Jerusalem is to be a strong and prosperous, God centered, vibrant hub of social and spiritual life, then it needed to be full of people. Right at this point, beginning of the chapter, it's a bit of a ghost town. People from the rural communities around Jerusalem, well, they'd been um, very glad to commute into work on the rebuild and to help, which was wonderful, but the work had completed, they'd returned to their country homes. I wonder if you're surprised at how they sorted the problem out in verse 1. Have a look at it again. Now, the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem, imagine that—the holy city. While well, the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. So imagine if we kind of said, "Look, we're going to we're going to part a church, you know, ten miles down the road, and um, we're going to have a raffle, and uh, whoever gets pooked out is going, go up and move up and move." I mean, it wasn't quite a raffle, okay, but it was it was lots. Um, so they saw that they could only create a God-centered community if they made costly but strategic life choices of where to live. I mean, these were country folks. They depended on the land to survive. Few would have chosen to leave the communities that some of them have been part of for the past 100 years, their their, their ancestors, since they first returned from exile. The move from rural to urban life was to exchange the spacious farming life of the country for the more confined commerce and business life of the city. And the striking thing here is just their obedience to God. As in verse 1, lots fall to one in ten families, and they up and move to town. There is total submission to God's will with their postcode. Now, given that the people of Judah at the time numbered around 50,000 people, We're talking about 5,000 who obey God in this. Now, casting lots was a, a, a key way of discovering God's will back then. They would pray over that and ask the Lord to lead them through it. As New Testament believers, we're enriched with far greater spiritual resources. If you're a Christian, you have God the Holy Spirit living in you. To guide you, to direct you, if you'll let him. But often our decisions, if we're honest, are rather shaped by the individualism around us that teaches us to do what's best for me rather than for community. So a great question to ask is how open are you to the Holy Spirit in your life? Speaking to you through his word, the Bible, prompting you, and leading you so that you make decisions that are shaped by what is strategic for building Jesus' community, building his church. And it's really interesting isn't it, how just how practical this gets here and radical. The example is the strategic life, big life choice of where you live. It's been really encouraging over the past few years where a number of you have relocated to this area from around the country, but actually months maybe maybe a couple of for a couple of years before you you headed down this way some Sundays to church hunt and I always advise people who are moving away from the area as you choose where to live, move near a good church or if you're church planting great if um, possible travel do your commuting to work not to church. Now, I just want to caveat that by saying I'm someone who, who spent actually a significant chunk of the formative years of my Christian life traveling over 11 miles to church. And there are good reasons for sometimes doing that. But if you have to do that, you know it's harder, isn't it? You have to be prepared to put in the miles and travel time to build genuine, deep community in the church family. Building a God-centered community in a local church where life is easily shared, where people are known and know each other well, it's far easier the nearer we are to each other. So when it comes to some of these big life choices, be thinking strategically, how will this best help me to play my part to build a God-centered community in our fractured, our hurting world? And it's striking here that this is more than dutiful obedience in verse 2. Look at verse 2. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And that's unclear whether it means that the people chosen by lot, whether they willingly uh, came forward as they were chosen, or whether it was others volunteering to join them. Either way, there is both obedient strategic choices happening and willing strategic choices happening. And, of course, the ultimate example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. He swapped the postcode of heaven for a postcode on earth, for a hole in the ground where the cross that he was nailed to was slammed into. So that for all who repent and trust in Jesus' death for forgiveness, he might birth his worldwide God-centered community of his church that believers' postcode on earth will one day be transformed into the postcode of heaven on earth. It was out of love for his people that Jesus said in John 6:38, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. That is the Hebrews tells us that Jesus came willingly. He came joyfully. For the joy set before him, the joy of bringing glory to the Father, in saving his people, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in the power of the Spirit that's within us, let's, in response to him, like him, make strategic life choices to build his God-centered community. Well, our second feature um, here this morning is of a God-centered community: is people serving with humble diversity. Now, verses three to twenty-four is a long list of people who upsticked and they moved to Jerusalem, and then in verses twenty-five to thirty-six, it lists the towns of Judah that people inhabited. But the way that these people are described shows the great variety of gifts and abilities these people bought to building a God-centered community. And the very fact that they're listed shows the value that God places on individuals. So here are people who are acting for the greater good of the community, but it's not that everyone gets cloned. There, there are individuals, and individuals are valued in this community. And the list is a great encouragement to use our spiritual gifts well. In church, in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, our schools. Let's look at the just skim down. So verses one and three, um, there are people there with leadership qualities. And just interesting to note there that the Jerusalem's leaders and the provincial leaders there they set a good example and settled in the city of Jerusalem. They lead by example because good leaders don't call people to more sacrifice than they're prepared to make themselves. And in verse 9, um, people with administrative gifts, uh, now populated in verse 9, we see that Jerusalem had a chief officer, a man called Joel, and a man called Judah, looking after the new court of the city. And if you like, this kind of prime minister and his deputy prime minister that was responsible for civil affairs, building regulations maybe, street cleaning or um, public order, a whole range of things. Verse 16, there are others who were on the... Temple building maintenance team, two Levite leaders who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. They kept the temple building in good shape. Verse 19, there were caretakers, gatekeepers that kept watch at the gates, 172 of them. Not the most glamorous thing to do, uh, nor will it feature big in the pages of church history, but such vital work is remembered in heaven's history books. And then there were lots of people involved in praise and prayer. These were your public worship leaders and prayer warriors. So verse 11 tells us of Sariah, who was the worship team leader, the official in charge of the house of God. Verse 12, he's supported by various Levites and associates. And look at verse 17, people with special musical gifts. Uh, Matanai, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Buk B'kai, second among his associates. Verse 22, there's Asaph's descendants, musicians who were responsible for the service of the house of God. Verse 24, there's the head of human resources, Pethahiah, the king's agent in all the affairs relating to the people. Great list of people. God names, and therefore he values individuals in his community. And if you're a Christian, You have at least one spiritual gift that God has given to you. I wonder what your spiritual gift or gifts are. Your gift will be different to others. You may feel it's lesser than others or greater than others. Don't compare. God names your gift. We're meant to be different. We're meant to complement each other, to value each gift and selflessly give of ourselves to each other. And one of the striking things about this list is that people's gifting did actually complement each other. And for that to work, there had to be great humility. So there were leaders and there were associates who supported the leaders. There were the priests who were the main leaders and then the Levites who helped the priests. There were the temple servants, and then there were supervisors supervisors in charge over them. There were musicians under the king's orders regulating their day. I think it's right to say that in any God-centered community, there has to be leaders and followers serving together with humble diversity. So in our, our church life, this should work out. In our community, in the communities the Lord has placed each of us, our schools, our workplaces, are family context. And I want to encourage you this morning in the many and the diverse gifts that you bless each other with and those around you with, that you might work towards a God-centered community. One historian who wrote a, a history of the, 18, the 19th century church said how he wished he could have said more, quote, about the ordinary life of Christian people in parishes and congregations, which has gone on steadily from generation to generation, without which there would be no church history worth mentioning. Never underestimate the huge potential impact when you use your spiritual gift. Let me give you a couple of examples. So um, you may have heard of the great American preacher D.L. Moody. Moody was used by God through his preaching. He was a great preacher. God used him to to save thousands and thousands of people. And Moody tells how it all began for him when his Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, who was a retiring man with very little ability to preach, urged him to, quote, come to Christ who loved him and wanted his love, and should have his love. And Moody says that there were tears in his eyes as he said those words to Moody, words more eloquent than Moody's most powerful sermon. This forgotten Sunday school teacher, Edward Kimball, made such an important contribution to gospel progress in the 19th century. Or maybe it's a cheery word. Maybe it's a word of encouragement. I read of someone recently who was out for a walk in the park. And they saw a family acquaintance that they, they didn't know very well at all. And they called out, Hi, how are you doing? It's lovely to see you. That was it. That was the full extent of the conversation. The acquaintance just smiled back rather awkwardly. Or well, weeks later he discovered that acquaintance was considering taking his life. And as a direct result of that smile and of that greeting, he had second thoughts. It was a conversation the man hardly remembered. Never underestimate the impact of your gifts. Your words, no matter how insignificant you may feel they are, no matter how behind the scenes or upfront you may be, use your gifts for God's glory, serving the Lord Jesus with humble diversity in the church, family, and beyond. And this is against the sinful individualism in our culture. Trust God to multiply your work for him, to build a community it's God-centered. Let's not give up on that. And that leads us to our, our final thing, um, a bit more briefly. So thirdly, a God-centered community has people leading with faithful continuity. This is chapter 12. Chapter 12, 1 to 26, is a list of leaders, the priests and the Levites. And it lists them right from the exiles who returned from Babylon in 538 B.C., down to Nehemiah's day in 445 BC and following. So this list covers nearly a century of faithful leaders. And actually, this was a really, really difficult century in their history. There were high points of progress and victory for sure. But as we've seen in this series in Ezra and Nehemiah, they were plagued by setbacks. Not only was there opposition from the neighboring people, so that at one point the rebuilding work came to a standstill for years, but there was also apathy inside the community of God's people. But through those years, there were faithful leaders who stuck to their guns and carried on leading. They were far from perfect, but over the years, there were people leading faithfully. I love the recurring phrase in chapter 12, in the days of. It's there in verse 7. Look at in verse 7. These were the leaders of the priests and their associates in the days of Joshua. It's there in verse 12. In the days of uh, Joachim, these were the heads of the priestly families. Verse 22, it's there again. The family heads of the Levites in the days of Eliashib, Jodiah, Johanan, uh, Judah, as well as those of the priests were recorded in the reign of Darius the Persian. It's there in verse 26 again. They served in the days of Joachim, son of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, in the days of Nehemiah the governor, and of Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law. And many of those days, they were days of opposition, hard graft, that involved both sacrifice and disappointment. Years when not very much seemed to happen. You know, a great epitaph for for any one of us who believers here would be. She served God in her days. He served God in his days. Days when it was tough to be a Christian at school and at work. When unlike in the southern hemisphere today, where thousands are becoming Christians, it's hard work with few results. Days of cynicism to the gospel. With apathy and materialism and liberal false teaching attacking, infiltrating the church. Days when... He or she stood out from the crowd, defying and rebelling against the me-centered culture around us and making strategic life choices, serving with humble diversity in God-centered community of Jesus' church. So there's faithfulness in chapter 12, but also continuity. The work of God doesn't stop with key leaders when key leaders go home to heaven. As you read chapter 12, it spreads nearly a century. Leaders, whole generations, they come and they go. But a God-centered community of his people remains, led by faithful leaders. And part of effective leadership is to train future leaders, working to raise up a new generation of leaders so there's faithful continuity in making Jesus known. That's leading God's way, and and as a church, we need to be thinking through further how we multiply effective leaders at every level of church life if his community is to continue to grow and to prosper. Well, look, as we seek to do this, as we seek to serve in our days, remember we can only do this because Jesus served God in his days. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And throughout the days of his life here on earth, he offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. His mission to go to the cross, to give his life as a ransom for many, was the most costly strategic life choice, the humblest service, the most faithful leadership. And yet he was a faithful leader in his day, and he led the way to the cross. And through his death there, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and give their lives to him. So it's through the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness and the filling of his spirit that come to us through faith in Jesus, that we too can be faithful and make strategic life choices and serve with humble diversity and lead with faithful continuity.